You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Bruce Hood, who is a professor of developmental psychology in society at the University of Bristol. And he's also the author of, most recently, Possessed, Why We Want More Than We Need. And he's also the author of a book called Supersense, Why We Believe the Unbelievable, which sort of has, I guess there's another version of it, which is called The Science of Superstition, same book. Also a book called The Self-Illusion and one called A Domesticated Brain. Welcome, Bruce. Hello there. So this book, Possessed, builds on a lot of the themes that you've been touching on throughout your career. And you're looking at the developing brain and how the developing brain tells us a lot about how we think as adults. A lot of the things that we're trying to sort out, what exactly is socially constructed, for lack of a better word, and what is deeply rooted in our psychology, it helps to go and look at how children think how infants think and how our thought process emerges and is shaped by the the world around us. As somebody who is also a lawyer and who is deeply interested in property law, you spent a lot of time talking about property law and conceptions of property. And I found this really interesting. Does this extend naturally out of your interest in things like security blankets and lucky charms. And I remember you have some great stories about Mr. Rogers' sweater and, you know, kidneys and so forth. It seems like a natural outgrowth of your interests in associational thinking. Yeah, yeah, it is. And in fact, the books that you mentioned, they all have a sort of common theme in the sense that what really fascinates me is the mundane things that we treat as just unremarkable aspects of human thought and behavior. It's so, so familiar that we don't even question them. But when you start to look at them a little more closely, you realize how peculiar they really are. It's just that we're so familiar, we never really question it. And ownership and possessions is clearly something that falls in that category because it controls our lives. If if you think about our daily lives are structured around the principles of legal system, what we can do, what we own, financial systems, everything in modern civilization is structured around this concept of ownership. And it also harkens to our unusual relationship that we have with physical objects. We're not the only species on the planet that interacts with objects. Other primates will use tools, but we are very different in that we've obviously got the technologies and the cognition to build incredible things, but we form emotional attachments to our possessions, whereas animals don't form emotional attachments generally. And I think this reflects the way we conceive of ourselves as individuals who are possessing bodies and minds, but also we have possessions, we have things which are part of our identity. And so throughout the book, I talk about this idea as the extended self. And that, of course, is a building upon the self-illusion book, which again is pointing out to that we have this constructed identity Yes, we inherit dispositions and personality and genes play a role, but then these play out in societies. And I, and so I, I wanted to draw attention to the way that we construct our identity from children through to adulthood. And that explains a lot of the unusual behavior that we see when it comes to 
possessions and ownership. Yeah, what I found fascinating was this idea that when people see their possessions destroyed or when they're forced to give them up, they experience physical pain and that you can actually make them more willing to part with their possessions if you give them aspirin. That was fascinating to me. And it made me think, is, is it proprioception that we call it, where if you're wearing a hat and you learn to kind of duck under the lintel because you feel that it's an extension of you, do we start attaching that to more and more abstract objects in a, in a way? I think at the extreme end it does because the emotional connection that we have certainly is, is underpinned by our reward systems in our brains. So the pursuit of goals, you probably have heard of the dopaminergic systems, and it's actually a misnomer to call it the dopamine system. But basically, there are neurobiological systems which compel us to seek out goals, and we get certain physiological satisfaction from achieving, acquiring things. Likewise, there's a physical pain for some people in giving up their possessions, especially if they have a strong connection with them. And you just need to consider all those examples where people react in unreasonable ways when people threaten their property. In my talks, I usually, I've got this great video of a guy leaping on the bottom of his car, which has been jacked at the time. But in the cold light of day, you wouldn't cling onto the bonnet of your car. As soon as somebody violates that personal ownership principles, then that triggers within us an automatic fight or flight response. It speaks to the deep psychological connection that we have with our possessions. And that's why people feel violated. It's kind of interesting that, you know, home burglary and robbery is obviously a financial loss. But what people don't realize that actually is an incredible emotional impact on people, the victims. And it can last for months, even years after they've been robbed. And it's because it gets back to this concept of a violation of our, of our personal identity. So I think that, yes, they, they do. This is represented in our neural systems in various ways as, as motivational pleasure and rewards and, and pain, as it were. As a behavioral economist, I talk a lot about endowment effects and loss aversion and how there's some random mug or teddy bear that doesn't really mean anything to you and then it's arbitrarily assigned to you and then all of a sudden you defend it with your life, so to speak. And we in the, in the business school try to cure people of this irrational bias, which can get in the way of profitable trading and, and so forth. But I think this characteristic or trait wouldn't exist if it didn't serve some important purpose. So I know part of it is human. Humans have the capacity to do it in a very abstract way, but there's evidence that animals also can be very territorial, at least with respect to defending the things that they see as theirs. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a distinction between possession and ownership, which it's important to draw because ownership is a social convention. And I would argue you don't see any evidence of ownership in the animal kingdom, but plenty of evidence of territorialism and possessions. Possession comes from the French word, which means to place or hold upon. And, and so yeah. animals will fight. To put, you, put your foot on it, right? To put your paw That's on exactly it. Exactly it, yeah. So they will defend their possessions, typically territories, food, and mates. And they recognize, for example, the first possession rule that if somebody is in possession or occupying a location, they'll tend not to challenge them for it. But if it's ambiguous at who had it first, then they'll fight for much longer over that same thing. So they kind of recognize that if you've got it, then it's yours, but I might challenge you for it, as it were. 
So that's kind of a coordination, it's coordination equilibrium, Yeah, it's, right? it's exactly. It's, a, it's to optimize the amount of conflicts that you get into because if you fight over everything, you're going to be burnt out because the, the person's going to defend it more strongly if they feel the rightful possession. So that's why you try to pick and choose your battles, as it were. But what you won't see, there is one report, and I don't know if it's ever been verified, in crows. But other than the crows, there being an exception, what you don't generally see is animals protecting the possession rights of other animals in the group. So they won't go to the defense of property if one animal decides to go for another's. Or if the animal is not watching it and the other one takes it sneakily, the third party kind of intervention you don't see. Whereas ownership depends on third party policing. It depends on the notion of perpetuity that you own something for time, because unless you've given it up or given it away, it still belongs to you to the extent that you can then go away and maybe fight a battle or and expect to come home and still have everything there. So ownership is the mechanism that allows you to accumulate resources in a way which is much more flexible than actually having to literally sit on it and protect it, which is what you find with possessions. So in that sense, it's a convention, but it does differ between groups. It differs culturally. So for example, I draw light upon the hunter-gatherers, the Hausa tribe of Tanzania, the last hunter-gatherer tribe, the one of the few left on the planet. And they don't have the notion of personal possessions in the same way that we do. I suspect it's probably not entirely true that they don't, but they do have this notion of collective ownership. And the endowment effect that you're referring to is supposedly absent in this group, unless they're individuals who've had experience trading with Westerners. But in general, the hunter-gatherers tend not to have this sort of uh, unique relationship with personal possessions. And that makes a lot of sense because hunter-gatherers by their nature cannot accumulate a lot of personal baggage. And so there, there has to be the, they have to be flight of foot. And so they have to really take only what's needed for the group rather than dragging along all this extra stuff. And they have a concept that you don't find in Western society called demand sharing. So if you're not using something, then anyone in that group is perfectly entitled to help themselves to it. It's a bit like your neighbor goes out, you just go over and take his lawnmower because he's not using it. It does distinguish between in-group and out-group. So the demand sharing is limited to... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's not like they're all altruistic. No, no. It's all optimized for the, the efficiency of the group. Yeah. So they will have group conflict, of course. But within the group, the ownership is collective or communal. And the endowment effect, getting back to what you're mentioning, is more pronounced in Western societies, which promote very much individualism and status as signaled by your possessions, as opposed to more collectivist societies. This is the research, apparently. Although I suspect that those categorical divisions between East and West are probably disappearing as societies are beginning to become more similar in many ways. But it, apparently the endowment effect is not, not as strong in those who live in more interdependent or collectivist societies. I interviewed Michael Heller recently, who's a law professor, who's written, wrote a book called Mine. And it reminded me when you described how kids, when they're interacting with each other, this is one of the first ways in which they interact, right? They'll yeah. claim possession of a toy and they'll maybe 
claim the possession of a toy that someone else is is playing with. And this is how they will establish their hierarchies very quickly. It'll be about fighting over possessions. And it's not possessions that they even necessarily want or care about, but it's really more about displaying their place in in the pecking order to some degree, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's some early research showing about 90% of the conflicts in the playground are over over possessions and you're right this is why they're doing it it's to to dominate once they've got a bandit and go after another kid's thing so they recognize and this is quite early on they recognize that the more that you can claim control over the more status that you have so children move from a very kind of egocentric view of their relationship with property and through socialization they have to become more altruistic they have to Contrary to some people's opinions, children are pretty selfish and they don't generally share unless they're told to do so. And this is how they take on the norms, the social norms that they're exposed to. And actually, there's a line of research showing that the patterns of sharing behavior directly map onto what they're observing when they see their parents doing things. So there is this malleability, this flexibility in learning. But underneath it all is the, the underlying mechanism, which is universal which is to be accepted. If that's a society where you're very individualistic and you're regarded through status, or if it's a society which is more collectivist, where you're expected to contribute and cooperate, it doesn't matter what it is. The child will fit with whatever is the driving narrative. And, and that's, the, that's the ultimate thing, because the one thing that you don't want to do is be excluded. So that gets back to my book called The Domesticated Brain, that because we became such an interdependent, socialized animal, We had to learn to become domesticated. In other words, we had to learn the rules, the social rules. We had to learn how to be accepted by others around us. And in some societies, that's in Western society, that's status. And by the way, they have status in Eastern societies as well. It's just defined differently. And that's the point. It's it's to be accepted. And I think you reference a study where these kids were exposed to some kind of stressor. I think it was around an earthquake or, or something. And the younger kids w- responded to this by being more possessive and the older kids responded by being more more generous. Yes. Now, is this sort of like a, a Piagetian developmental path or is it really, would that be kind of more context dependent and cultural specific? It's funny you reminded me, I had, I'd forgotten about that study, but I've just been thinking about this in the context of what happened during the pandemic, because mm. I don't know what happened in the US, but when we went to the pandemic, you saw a strange kind of survivalist mentality taking over and people became very, very selfish. So they started up buying up toilet rolls and baked beans. Don't know why it's those two <laughs> items. <laughs> they probably could be We didn't different. do baked beans in America. We did the toilet paper, no baked beans. We did the toilet paper, yeah. So I think that <laughs> under stress, people regress to a kind of defensive mode of thinking, which is protection and trying to look out for themselves. So whilst I, I think not sure how much we can generalize on that particular study, but it does seem to suggest that when you're threatened, there is this tendency to regress to a more egocentric kind of self-centered notion. But then with time, because what happened with the pandemic, if you remember, is that actually more altruism started to appear. So I think in the initial threat stage, people don't know what to do. They're kind of looking around to protect themselves. And once they've got a sense of what's going on, then they start to look out for each other. And you see much more a shift in the patterns of behavior. At least that's what we saw in the UK. So yeah, I think stress can influence our our rationality and our reasoning, which of course is entirely logical. When I was referencing Michael Heller, he has a bunch of concepts or stories around property, right? And one of them 
is around possession. So first in time, something belongs to the person who has it first in time. And there's another, which is like the sweat of the brow theory, where the more effort you put into something, and that requires a little bit more kind of abstraction because it's, it's not immediately apparent when you see two people in possession of something who has invested more in, in the creation of that. And that seems to be a uniquely human narrative. Is that something that all people very quickly figure out yeah. or is this? Yeah. So we've done some research on that. So we looked at this, this really stems from John Locke, the philosopher and his concept of property, which is his idea was that if you take something in nature and put effort into transforming it into something, so working upon it, that entitles you to claim ownership over it. And that seems to be one of the first principles that young children at three years of age, that's the youngest we've managed to study it. They seem to get that. So. For example, in our studies, we had lumps of clay. And if you make something out of it and you say, who does this belong to? The children readily attribute the person who put the effort into changing it as the owner, even if that means if you're taking somebody else's clay. So we as adults would be a little bit more nuanced about that. It's like going over to your neighbor and taking their wood pile and then bringing it back over and making a chair and saying, well, I put the effort into it. So we would acknowledge where the resources come from originally. Interestingly, you can see actually that it's not clear cut because this is exactly where you're going to get conflicts and legal battles as to who put in the effort, what constitutes an original and especially intellectual property. This is an incredibly difficult area. So when people take a piece of writing or they take a tune and they modify it, they say, oh, it's different. Then they got to argue, well, to what extent does that constitute an original piece of effort? So it is actually quite nuanced, even in the adult world. But the basic origin of it is, yes, if you, if you put the effort into transforming and constructing and creating something, then, then that should default with you. And that's, that was one of the principles that John Locke, the philosopher, argued as one of the principles of how you establish ownership. Now, I remember when I was younger, I, I went to a party and, and it was like two in the morning and everyone was hungry. And... So I just went to the host's refrigerator and, and just cooked up a meal for everybody. And, I, and, and everybody was very grateful. I think the host was like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, right? Exactly. That's, those are my raw materials, right? But that seems to be also says something about our, our notions of fairness, right? So kids have a notion of fairness where they think that you can earn your entitlement, right? In some ways. And so if someone takes something away from someone, they will be more likely to intervene if that person has invested a lot in the acquisition or production of that, of that item. Yeah. Right? Certainly by three years, you see third, what I was talking about earlier in the animal kingdom, you see the third party intervention and they'll, and that becomes more pronounced and they get really quite indignant. They're quite good at policing children. And I think that's actually a general principle as children start to learn rules. They enforce them very rigidly. All sorts of rules, like gender rules, for example. You can wear that, boys can do this, girls can do that. And I think looking at the, uh, the work of Jean Piaget and other developmentalists, when children discover concepts, they kind of have them all or nothing. But as time goes on, they get more experience. They learn that there are more exceptions. And so they come a little bit more nest in exceptions to the general rule. But initially, I think this is a principle of development and cognitive development is that you learn a rule, you apply it to black and white, and then you start to learn, actually, maybe maybe we can make some exceptions. But yeah, I think that's the way it generally happens. And yes, so, so when they see violations of, uh, of ownership, people taking things, then they'll object very strongly. 
But in particular, they they have a problem with giving more to someone who put in less effort. Yeah, and yeah. actually they'll do what we do as adults. They'll start to punish those. So there's an interesting phenomenon in behavioral economics you're probably aware of that if, if people violate the social norms in, in these various games, people will actually give up some of their personal possessions in order to punish such is the, we don't like transgressors. And this is why people get really indignant when they see that someone is a cheater. So again, this is something that children start to really get into and, and, and learn to do. And, and, and we do it as well, you know, as adults, we've actually, we get really outraged when people seem to be violating the rules that the rest of us are abiding by. Now, the other thing I think you, you talk about, and you talk about this a lot in, in SuperSense, is the, the idea that objects can absorb properties of magical thinking in a way. So part of this is, I know that you don't mention these studies, but there's studies that if you wear a white coat that was worn by a doctor, you're going to feel a certain way as opposed to if it was worn by a painter. But I think you mentioned that if you use a golf club that belonged to a professional golfer, you know, you perform better and so forth. This seems to be really, really deeply rooted in, in how we think and probably explains why we are so obsessed with authenticating the origins of artworks and so forth, right? Absolutely. And, and that actually is a pivotal factor in determining the value of a picture. You could have an identical duplicate. You couldn't tell them apart, but as soon as you discover that one is inauthentic, then its value plummets. And this is, I think that all of these examples tap into a ubiquitous psychological phenomenon. This is getting back to what I was saying right at the beginning. That I'm really interested in things which don't seem strange until you really question them. And this phenomenon is called essentialism. And this is the idea that whenever we form emotional attach or whenever we have an emotional perspective on something, we imbue it with a metaphysical property of some unique feature which characterizes it. And that's called the essence. And it can be traced back to Plato. Plato also felt that there were metaphysical dimensions to reality that we couldn't as mortals perceive. And in the early Greek models of the, of the world, they, they talked about the four fundamental elements, but there was a fifth element or fifth essence, whereas where we get the word quintessential, five essence. And the quintessential element was the thing which gave it its, its identity. Then in the Middle Ages, we had a distinction between unique individual identity for a single thing, an individual, as opposed to an identity for a group. So this was by the philosopher Dun Scotus, and he coined the terms hasty, which is the essence which defines a unique individual, as opposed to quiddity, which is the essence which defines the group. So for example, all dogs have the same quiddity, but your dog Fido, your pet, has a hasty that makes it different. Now, actually there is, in a scientific model of the world, something which akin to that, which is of course DNA. Species do tend to share the same sort of DNA, but they also have their unique DNA. But we don't teach children that. And yet children start to make those sort of categorical judgments, their dog versus dogs versus cats and so on, spontaneously. They do that at three to four years of age. So we're chopping the world up into different categories. And when we start to form emotional attachments to inanimate things or even animate things like pets and whatever, we imbue them with this property of the essence so that the notion of a perfect clone is abhorrent to us. The idea of the technologies which seem to challenge the uniqueness of things that to which we have a strong emotional connection is what we find vulgar and Actually, if you think about a lot of the horror stories and the science fiction films, which we get Frankenstein or, or any of these things where there's a violation of the natural order, 
is because very often it's a violation of the essentialist principles, which is that there is this underlying feature which defines things. And that's why we value the original over the authentic, even though you couldn't tell them apart. And yes, you could say maybe that's just some sort of association learning. For example, in the book, I talked about why people wouldn't want to wear the clothing of a killer. It was Fred West in the UK, but I, I used Jeffrey Dahmer in the US, who's more familiar as a mass murderer. People- Yeah, you, you talk about doing this in, in class, right? Don't the students find out that you're faking it after a couple of years? They, well, they tell the other students that it really is sweater. But this is the point. Even if it, people know at one level, it isn't going to be the killer's cardigan, but at another level, it still triggers a revulsion and repugnance because of its deep-seated vulgarity. This is something that Jonathan has been working on, the psychologist. He, he's done research on disgust. And disgust is one of these automatic emotional responses that you really have trouble controlling with reason and rationality. Paul Rosen is another psychologist. He's the one that makes these dog feces out of chocolate. And people know it's not dog feces, but they still wouldn't dream of eating it and anything like that. Now, you might say, oh, that's, that's simply association. Why do you need to evoke some concept that there's this metaphysical thing called an essence. Isn't it just the thought of the killer's cardigan makes you feel disgusted? It's, it's not as if you're actually, there's anything in there. But actually, there's some good work suggesting that it goes more than, it's more than just an association. And the example I like to use is Hitler's cookbook. So if it was pure association, then you should be disgusted or appalled at reading the biography of Adolf Hitler, because in it, it'd be documenting all the atrocities, all the things that we find so awful about that individual. But people generally don't find that as disgusting as say holding a cookbook that was owned by Hitler, which has the recipes for apple strudel that he made for Eva Braun. The notion of actually having that physical connection is more repugnant than actually all the associated facts so that tells me that it's not simply the association triggering all these horrible thoughts about people. It's the, it's the physicality of actually connecting with an individual. And conversely, this sort of murderbilia, this is there are people who collect this sort of stuff. There's, there's memorabilia, which is why people pay large amounts of money for the clothing of people that they admire. In fact, there used to be a company that sold on the celebrity clothes from the Oscars. And they, they offered a dry cleaning service, but nobody wanted the dry cleaning service. They wanted to buy the sweat of, you know, whoever, whatever celebrity they were really interested in. And my colleagues, Paul Bloom and George Newman at Yale, they've done studies showing that people don't want to have their uh, memorabilia purified or what. They want it to have all the, I think you've got the word cooties in America. They kind of got the germs of whatever purse the previous owner is. So I think the origin of this taps into... Paul Rosen's work again here, that there is this intuitive biology that we operate with. And we, we assume that something of the person is imbued within the clothing. And the reason that we don't want to wear the killer's cardigan is some fear of contagion, that maybe they're evil because they've got some biological impurity or whatever, but I don't want to touch it or come near it. So it is supernatural thinking, but it's not entirely illogical because we don't know why people become mass murderers. In terms of cootie aversion, you could tell a story about how it is, it's like a primitive germ theory and it would make perfect sense to avoid those people who are sick or, or whatever. On the positive side, the positive cooties, it's, you know, Mr. Rogers' sweater. People want to touch that. Maybe they, they want people to wear it. That's a little bit harder to root in sort of biology, right? 
yeah, that, that is true. But what we do know, for example, the contagion effect. So these are positive and negative contagion. So Rosin's work again has shown that the negative contagion effect is much, much stronger than the positive contagion. So you can still have a mechanism which rides upon a deeper, older germ theory, which is probably what's going on. I don't think there's one, you need to just have one mechanism as it were, but I do think that that to me is a satisfying account for the disgust effect that you see and why it seems to be intuitive. Probably more problematic is trying to apply that to something like forgeries and authentic art and things like that, because that's really stretching a kind of germ theory to some extent. But it does get back to this notion of, of, of physicality and the connection and, and the way that we need to, as I say, the idea of having an entirely duplicated person is, is something which we would find apart. There's a condition called Capgras Cap syndrome where it's a neurological condition, thankfully very rare, but people feel that others are duplicates. They're inauthentic. And in one case, actually a son killed his father because he was convinced he thought he was a sort of cyborg robot. So people can lose that rationality and think that others are somehow cloned duplicates. And I think what's going on there is that at one level, you recognize the person as physically similar to someone that you know, but you're not getting the emotional experience that you normally have when you see that person. And therefore, there seems to be this, this disconnect between the recognition emotionally with the physical recognition visually of what somebody is. So once that's gone, then that representation of that person is, is, is corrupted. And that's why you assume that it must be a forgery or, 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 or a clone. And I think people, I think that's one of the reasons that we find identical twins very, very spooky because we, we treat others as individuals. And when we see two look physically difficult, that really presents us with a, with a challenge to this individualistic, uh, essentialist way of seeing the world. And by the way, we, we don't care about, it's only for things that we care about. We don't, we're not upset by identical foam cups or utensils. That's not a problem. There are lots of things in the world that we can be duplicated. We wouldn't care anything about. But as soon as we, as soon as the importance of the unique individual becomes apparent to us, then that's when we evoke, I think, the essentialist view. Now, you have some experiments. That you have the copy machine, which yeah. I, I love this. You whip this thing out in a variety of contexts, right? And you do this with kids where you put objects in. And certain objects with certain kids, they're like, bring it on. Duplicate this thing for me. And yeah. others, they're like very wary of the duplicate. So what does that tell us? Yeah, so this was getting back to this work really came out of my own experiences with my own daughter who has an attachment object. And about two-thirds of parents will be familiar with this phenomenon. Two-thirds of kids form strong emotional attachments to teddy bears and blankets. And uh, interestingly, it's a particularly Western phenomenon. It's not so prevalent in the Far East. And the reason we think is because in sleeping practices in the West, we typically separate the child around at the end of the first year, put them into another room. And I think this causes a little bit of distress and they self-soothe with whatever's in the crib, which might be a blanket or a teddy bear. And then that becomes part of the routine. And then what starts off as just part of an associated learning thing soon transitions into this kind of emotional valence where it becomes a comforting object that they need this thing in order to feel safe and, and sleepy and, and so on in order to get off to sleep. And the reason you don't find in Eastern cultures is that typically in traditional families, the child will sleep with the mother well into middle childhood. So they don't have to have this period of separation. And indeed, they were called transitional objects by Winnicott, who was a post-Freudian psychoanalytic 
And I, I think he's right. I think this is what they are. They, interestingly enough, my other daughter never formed it. So there's a lot of variation there. And I don't know why some people do and some people don't. Did she sleep in the same room as the other daughter when she it's was probably, one? Yeah, I, I, don't, I wasn't even aware of this phenomenon. Until I, I didn't even question it. And people who haven't seen it won't know what I'm talking about. But any parent who's listening and will know exactly what I'm talking about because the connection is so profound. You try to take these things away and they get distressed and distraught. I've seen all sorts of funny things, people contacting the police station because the kid's teddy bear has gone missing and putting in a, a call out to try and retrieve that. Actually, when I asked my students, around about two thirds of them remembered having them and half of them still had the object. And these are 18 year olds. And by the way, my daughter, who's now well into her twenties, still has her attachment object. So it's one of these guilty secrets that people have around. But anyway, so the reason we did the, the duplicating machine was because it wasn't clear whether this attachment was a physicality of the kind of smell and the texture, or it was the actual essence, it had to be the original. So we decided to build this machine to convince children we could duplicate any physical object. And it was basically some old psychological experimental things called a statistoscope, which is a scientific looking box with dials and knobs and lights and things like that. And we had two of them. And what we did is we had a setup where we showed the child, we said, we've got this machine, look at this. And we put in a, a toy into one of the machines and then closed it up and then activated it and then stood back. And then after a couple of seconds, the other machine starts up by itself and lights going and it's buzzing. And then you open it up and now there are two identical toys. So the kids, we said, what happened? And, the, and the guy says, oh, it's, it's copied. The kid believes it's, it's like a, a photocopier for objects or a digital printer, if you like. Of course, what we're really doing is uh, someone around the back who's just feeding in identical toys. So it looks as if there is, it's a very compelling illusion, by the way. And so having convinced them that this machine duplicates, the question of interest is how would they respond if we asked to copy their toys? And in a study of children who had attachment, we identified them. We screened for them to find out if this was part of their behavior. We asked them to come in and bring in their attachment object, which was either a blanket or a teddy bear and also a favorite toy. And what we did is we went through the duplication scenario and they believed it worked. And then we said, well, let's put your toy in the machine. And this time, of course, we couldn't duplicate it because we don't have that sort of machine. <laughs> if we did, we'd be very wealthy. But we, we just left the machine closed and said, okay, which one do you want? Do you want the original or, or, and they really didn't believe there was another one in the other box. And when it was their favorite toy, they were they were indifferent. They didn't care. They, some, some thought it might be pretty cool to have an identical one. But when it came to their attachment object, they wanted the original one back. And indeed, some of them got quite distressed and wouldn't even let, let us put it into the machine in the first place because they were concerned that I suppose the integrity of the object would be violated. So this tells us that it was something to do with retaining its unique identity, which was critically important. We then went on to do more studies with this. So we looked at, for example, memorabilia in older children. So those previous studies were done with three-year-olds. We now looked at six-year-olds. And the six-year-olds are a little bit more savvy. You can ask them all sorts of questions about value. And we repeated the study, but this time we weren't looking at personal objects. We were looking at objects which were valuable because they belonged to Queen Elizabeth II. And they all knew who Queen Elizabeth was. Or they were valuable because they were made of silver. And in this situation, we actually had two silver goblets and two silver spoons. We said, this is a valuable spoon or goblet because it belongs to Queen Elizabeth, or this is valuable because it's made of silver. 
And then we went through the duplicating situation. Now we did actually have two objects they could view. And we said, okay, what's the value? And what we found in all the children, it was very clear, nice effect, is that they thought the duplicated object was of equal value when it was special because it was made of silver. So one silver cup is worth the same as the identical silver cup. But when it was Queen Elizabeth's cup or spoon, then that was worth a lot more than the, the duplicate. So that by six, they've already got this provenance notion, this idea of authenticity. So again, I think it, it fits with the picture that we're describing that when you form, when you see objects as an extension of personality, extension of identity, you then if that's something you like or admire, then that becomes something which has additional value in comparison to something which is a, a current duplicate. Mm -hmm. And likewise, now, if it had been a murderous <laughs> cardigan, then they probably wouldn't have wanted to touch it. I know you're not a clinical psychologist, but if we were to just speculate on what is the optimal amount of this associationalism or whatever we might describe it. I, I have a friend who, if she had a bad day wearing a particular garment, she'd never wear the garment again, which rises to the level of, I think, a, a disorder at some point. Or I know someone who's a hoarder who, who like can never throw anything out. And that, that to me, we think that's like a disorder. Can you be in the opposite direction? You know, when I look at the Marie Kondo people, I think there's something wrong with these people because <laughs> I walk through my house and every time I see an object, it evokes all sorts of memories, right? I see a book and I'm like, oh, I remember reading that. Or I see a ticket stub and I'm like, oh, I remember that concert. And if I, if I stripped all that stuff out, I mean, it would be like in a prison cell. Even people in prison cells will decorate them with memorabilia and so forth. Is there, you know, is there a healthy balance there? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that because I, I think you're right. I think you're pointing out these, these various disorders are the extreme forms of the spectrum that we're all on. And again, thinking about possessed and in the book, why do we want more than we need? For some people, it is, as you say, it's because these objects are an extension of their identity. But then I can also see an argument for why we need to rationalize and downsize and become less materialistic because of the consequences of relentless materialism. So you can see that maybe we need to abandon or, or, or let go of some of these things. On the other hand, someone who's completely psychotic, who doesn't form emotional attachments, who doesn't see people as people, but rather as objects, would be the other end of the extreme where they have no emotional connection with anything so they can dispose of objects and people without any remorse. So clearly, you know, you don't want to be at that end, which is in my mind, very unhuman. So I suppose there's a, there's a lot of middle ground that can be covered in Viva La Difference. I think the emotional characteristics that we differ upon are, are, are what makes us attracted to different types of people and couldn't say there's one optimal profile, but those of the artistic dimension are likely to be more essentialist to see much more value and authenticity. Those who are a little bit more of the financially oriented can probably be a little less endowed with the personal sentimentality of, of things. And that actually is true, by the way. Traders tend to score lower on endowment effects and their connection. Because if you can't let go of things, you're not going to be an effective trader because you're never going to sell anything. So yeah, there will be different profiles for different people. But the, the, the examples you're talking about seem to be the extremes. And I did talk about in the book about obsessive collecting and hoarders and how they have this real reluctance to, mm -hmm. to let go of things.
I wonder if the people who have no endowment effect, people who are the really good traders, have higher divorce rates. Because <laughs> Disposable partners, <laughs> yes. They can't form a, an attachment to, to people uh, as well. Well, there is a, an area of psychology in adult attachment theory which says exactly that that it's insecure attachments that they have developed as children that uh, propagate in their, uh, their relationships as adults. It's not my area, and I think that's maybe overgeneralizing, but I could, I could understand why these traits could actually manifest, actually, not just with possessions, but with people as well. So it's not entirely implausible, in my opinion. A big part of the book, Possessed, you're making the point that a lot of the aggressive pursuit of physical possessions is part of this hedonic treadmill where people are pursuing status. And you say that people would prefer to live in Sweden. And, you know, I interviewed Robert Frank, and he talks about the negative general consequences of inequality in that respect. And, and so there's lots of psychologists who say, well, you're better off pursuing experiences rather than possessions. But haven't we just replicated the entire status-seeking hierarchy in the world of experiences where not only do people signal their status on Instagram with their going to Petra and going to shark diving and yacht cruising and so forth, but also they'll aggressively pursue this and they'll invest huge resources so that they can get that selfie in front of the the Mona Lisa or whatever. Is there like a kind of a law of thermodynamics yeah, <laughs> that I, applies I, here regardless? I, no, you're absolutely right. And and that work on experiences, there, there was a line of research showing that generally it generates longer lasting happiness because objects by their very nature are physical and therefore they can easily age as it were, whereas a good memory never ages, it gets better in fact. And you can always gild your memories and everybody's memories are special and you don't adapt as quickly as you do to seeing your car sitting in the driveway and comparing it to a neighbor's car who's got the latest edition or latest model. Some possessions you become more attached to over time. Right? Yeah, that is true. But when you're in competitive competition, if you think about the status symbols, they typically are the latest fashions. And that's why that gets into this constant cycle of trying to outdo the Joneses or keeping up with the Joneses as, as it goes. Frank is the, the economist who, who pointed out. Yeah, but actually that kind of is a little bit too simplistic because it turns out that actually sometimes experiences, it depends on the individual. Okay, so we, we have to be careful not to overgeneralize that. But I think you're right. I think what, what we've seen is that you still get this one-upmanship or virtual signaling by actually spending it going on these, going to Machu Picchu and, and, and saying how, how unique and wonderful it is. And arguably, although there are resources used up in making things, there's also a hell of a lot of resources used up in travel. And so from the practicality of the carbon footprint, arguably, it, it might actually be the things that we think are less impactful on the environment are, in fact, the worst. Hotels are typically, if you think about the number of soap bars are thrown out every day because you, know, you use it once and then it's abandoned. It's probably, if someone's to sit down and, and work it out, I would probably be not too surprised to find that actually experiences have a greater impact than buying physical things. But yeah, that, that's the argument is that experiences generate these emotional uh, currency that you can't easily adapt to. Yeah, I want to talk about the, the sacred because oh, yeah. you know, I think there's, there's probably a law of thermodynamics that applies there as well, where most modern secular people don't think of themselves as religious. They don't think of themselves as superstitious or mm. anything like that. But I think there's probably some law that says that in many cases replacing one kind of 
what we might think of as, as superstition with another. I mean, isn't that sort of that way of thinking essential to who we are as, as humans, right? To attribute, to believe things that we don't necessarily have good scientific evidence in support of? Yeah, yes. So that was the, the real conclusion of the first book, Supersense, which was to argue that we all are inclined to believe in unbelievable things. And as you rightly point out, atheists, they may not agree with any religious belief, but nevertheless, they still also believe things. And what I argued was that belief was a very powerful mechanism for unifying group identity and group membership, because if you have a belief in something which is shared, then that signals to the other member that you have faith. Now that faith could be religious or it could be scientific. Now, of course, I'm a scientist and I'm, I also happen to be an atheist, but science by its nature is reproducible and it, it doesn't lead itself to testimony in the same way as that belief does. Nevertheless, we all require some sacred values in the sense that we need to sort of acknowledge there are some things which transcend monetary value that shouldn't be owned uniquely by anyone. Now in religion, that's very easy because you have sacred texts and you have sacred places and items and rituals and stuff like that. But even in the secular world, we still have sacred things. We still feel reverence. We still feel a sense that there's a deep emotional value to looking at original copy of On the Origin of Species or seeing, for example, Newton's tree as apple tree was propagated and sent to various places around the world and is grown in various universities. They have the original cuttings from the apple tree there. So there is a kind of magical thinking, even with someone like Newton. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think we all need to feel a little bit more connected. We're not all data. We're not just cyborgs. We, we do have a human side to us. I think secular people have to recognize that as well. And and, and that's why sacred values are so important, because if you can place a financial value on something, then that suggests there are just some things beyond the control or realms of any one individual. It's something which transcends the mundane and makes it profound. And that's why I talked about it as being a kind of supernatural quality. It needs to, it needs to transform it from the everyday into something which is, 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 is really special and unique, because we all need that in order to coalesce around values. So those values can be secular, but they're obviously much easier to do so when you have a, a belief system, which literally is supernatural in the sense of. There's certain words that people are unwilling to say mm -hmm. because they're afraid that it's gonna somehow corrupt them. Or even now people are avoiding Russian food <laughs> yeah. and so forth and Russian music. People won't listen to Tchaikovsky, right? Or, yeah. Even I think with the pandemic, in some places, the masks became, it felt like, you know, almost wearing a, a religious medallion yeah. at some point because it was, it was more symbolic in, in some contexts than it was a practical well, that's um, right. I mean, it, you know, barrier to transmission, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the other thing, of course, is that it's very difficult to ignore your biology. And within us, there are mechanisms which form connections very readily and the perception of control is really important for humans to the extent that when they're uncertain or they're stressed, they'll look for patterns in the world in order to try regaining control. And that's where superstitions arise because we don't know what's controlling the game of golf or, or the card game, or whatever. We're always looking to see, to repeat the pattern in order to try to establish it. So it takes a very powerful, strong mind to ignore these associative patterns which influence us because we're always tripwired into looking for them. 
So again, this is this is something that other commentators have pointed out that we always tend to seek out structure and order in the world, and very often we we attribute that to external forces and energies, even though we may not articulate that intuitively. That's the way we act and behave. So there'll be reluctance to do certain things or tempt fate. People say, "I don't believe in it," but I'm not going. Why should I tempt it? So there's again, I think within us. These, these early ways of thinking, and I, as I said, I think they, they're there developmentally young children. And whilst we might teach children the science of the world, we may teach them rational modes of thinking, they never entirely go away, which is why they reappear at times of stress. Like many things under stress, we regress. And so a lot of our superstitious behaviors, our rituals, our insecurities, our selfishnesses, all the sorts of things that we study young children they can reappear later in adult life. The power of the group, when you see people, large crowds suddenly lose themselves because they're being overwhelmed by, by the context, again, reminds us that we should recognize that we don't have as much individual control as we necessarily think we have. And the, the history of psychology is, is documented with many, many examples where people behave in strange ways that they would never predict they would. And I think that, again, speaks to the fact that we're not often aware of our insecurities and our weaknesses unless they're brought out to us. People often talk about a scientific view and a non-scientific way of thinking or an intuitive versus irrational, but aren't these pattern recognition impulses, don't they sit at the root of scientific discovery? Aren't most great scientists in many ways inspired by and, and motivated in ways that are non-systematic or they are and they aren't they have to they obviously have to test and verify yeah, exactly. but, but oftentimes the abduction that takes place is something that's a little bit difficult to put into a step-by-step -step scientific method that is true francis bacon is considered by many as being one of the founders of the empiricism and the rationality he advocated that you need a systematic approach to studying natural phenomenon. But he also suggested that you should wander off the track occasionally to curiosity, that things that attract you. So whilst the, the process of discovery, I mean, typically it's in you know, sciences, you observe something, you generate a hypothesis, and then you go about systematically testing that hypothesis with evidence. And sometimes you'll just notice things which are that odd and, and that interest. As I can't remember who said it, but the most important phrase in science is not I've, Eureka, I've found it, but rather that's odd. And that's the sort of curiosity that stimulates it. But once you've started on that road investigating a phenomenon, then there's a very well-specified approach, a recipe, a method, the scientific method to go about testing that. We're pretty good at it. We're not flawless. There have been some cul-de-sacs of thinking, and there've been some notoriously bad, bad science, but in general, it's self-correcting. That's why it's their only way forward in many ways, rather than believing or relying on testimony or faith or belief. And, and so it shouldn't be as susceptible to the vagaries of bad thinking because it's done as a collective exercise by people who shouldn't have a vested interest. Of course, that's the idealized notion of science. And for reality, of course, there's a lot of vested interests, there's a lot of egos, there's a lot of bad science going on, but in the long run, it will eventually correct. So that's the important point to remember. Well, Bruce, thank you for joining me. These books of yours will go on my shelf and I won't throw them out. I don't have the Kindle version. And every <laughs> time I walk by my bookshelf and I, I see them, I will think of this experience that I, I've had with you and they'll probably, if they don't fall over on me and kill me, they'll 
be tossed out when they drag me out of my house in, in a wooden box. So anyway, thank you so much for, for joining me. And no, that's uh, great. Thank you much. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Lot of fun. Chat again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>